Tonight's talk is part of the Walter E. Edge series of lectures in public and international affairs. The series was founded in 1957 in memory of Walter Edge, who served twice as governor of New Jersey and also as US senator and ambassador to France. He was lauded as Princeton's most distinguished citizens and one of New Jersey's greatest sons at the time of his death in 1956. I think he'd be very eager to hear tonight's speaker. To introduce Professor Schiller, let me call up my colleague, Yassin Eid Sahalia, who is the Otto A. Hack 1903 Professor of Finance and Economics and the director of the Bendheim Center for Finance. Yassin, thank you. So thank you, Jill, and uh, thanks to uh, the committee for making such a superb uh, selection of uh, lecture for tonight. Um, as many of you know, the Benheim Center for Finance is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we had the privilege of uh, welcoming back uh, Ben Bernanke to campus in uh, one of our lectures. And tonight, I have the equally exciting privilege of uh, introducing uh, Bob Schiller. Uh, to, uh, to Princeton, although he is no stranger to, uh, to this campus, uh, having a son who's a graduate student here. So, uh, Bob, uh, welcome to Princeton. Uh, Bob is the author M. Oaken, Professor of Economics at Yale University and at the Cowles Foundation for Research and Economics. Uh, he's also a professor of finance. He's a fellow of the International Center for Finance at Yale. Uh, Bob received his BA from Michigan and his PhD from MIT in economics in 1972. Uh, as many of you know, we've seen lots of students coming um, to get uh, their books um, inscribed by Bob. So he has written numerous books and articles on financial markets, on financial innovation, on behavioral economics, on macroeconomics, on real estate, on statistical methods, on public attitudes, on moral judgments regarding markets. He's been a prolific writer uh, and a very exciting one. Um, and as many of you know as well, he was one of the first economists to call the first the dot-com bubble in 1999, a year at least before it popped, uh, and then the housing bubble in future editions of his uh, Irrational Exuberance book. He's been very outspoken on many hot topics that are quite relevant in today's environment, including executive compensation, and he has proposed innovative solutions to ease unemployment. He's really one of the most prolific and thoughtful writers on various economic trends and, uh, and finance. And tonight we have the chance, we have a chance to hear his views on finance and the good society. Um, he's constantly, as I was mentioning, been ahead of the curve on his predictions and observations of market behavior. His 1989 book on uh, market volatility uh, came out just as I was starting graduate school and it he doesn't know that, but he's partly responsible for why I decided to, um, to study statistical methods in finance. I really love that book. Uh, it's a mathematical and behavioral analysis of price fluctuations in markets. Um, in, um, in work that followed uh, macro markets, creating institutions for managing society's largest economic risks, uh, Bob um, proposed a number of innovative solutions to um, alleviate um, risk-sharing problems in society. Uh, including futures contracts that might permit the management of risk to the standard of living of households. Um, I don't think many of those are trading quite yet, but perhaps they will uh, at some point uh, once, uh, once people realize that uh, those are really risks that are worth insuring. Um, I've mentioned Irrational Exuberance, uh, a book which has sold 
dozens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Uh, Peter Duhari here from PU Press is uh, coy about this, uh, but it's been an enormous success. Uh, it's an analysis and explanation of speculative bubbles. Uh, with particular reference initially to the stock market and the dot-com bubble, as I've mentioned, and then later on to real estate, again, ahead of the curve. Um, and uh, his many uh, prescient warnings about these matters have, have really made news. Um, the New Financial Order, Risk in the 21st Century, is another book by Bob that analyzed the expanding role of finance, insurance, and public finance in our future. He's also had the time to write about the current crisis and subprime solution, how the global financial crisis happened and what to do about it, where he offered an analysis of the housing and economic crisis and actually had solutions uh, about this. Uh, most recently, he co-authored Animal Spirits, How Human Psychology Drives the Economy and Why It, ma and why it Matters for Global Capitalism, which is a great book, uh, highly recommended as well. And when he's not teaching or writing all those great books, he actually somehow finds the time to develop market tools, uh, such as his repeat sales home price indices, which he developed originally with Carl Case, and that are now known as um, the Standard & Poor's uh, Case-Shiller Home Price Indices, and that actually are, uh, they are traded uh, contracts on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that use them as a basis. So this brief introduction should really convince you of the diverse range of Bob Schiller's interest and the extraordinary contributions that he's made to our profession. And we all look forward to hearing his views on the financial world after the crisis. So please join me in welcoming to Princeton Bob Schiller. Well, thank you, uh, Jill, Yasin. Uh, actually, I have uh, another Princeton connection that you may not have emphasized. You did mention my son, who's sitting over there. Um, but I also have a uh, Princeton University Press collection, connection. And you didn't, there's my editor, <laughs> Peter Doherty. You didn't mention that uh, most of my books were published through PUP. Uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, actually the talk today has a uh, uh, substantial origin through inspiration I got from my publisher. Publishers really matter, by the way. Uh, I've learned from experience. <laughs> uh, so the title of my talk uh, is Finance and the Good Society. And I actually didn't write the title. That's Peter Doherty's title. Uh, he called me up and said that the next in your sequence of books could possibly be a book on finance and the good society. Uh, and so I was thinking, you know, that, that title resonates with me. Maybe I'll do it. Uh, but I haven't done it yet. Uh, this is my first trial run at uh, my next book. Uh, but why did that title interest me when uh, editors have a way, or good editors have a way of coming up with good titles? It seemed to me interesting because it reflects a fundamental tension that we have in our society these days, uh, that after the financial crisis, uh, we have very mixed feelings about finance, uh, particularly about S Goldman Sachs and some other very successful financial institutions, uh, some others that were ba bailed out. Well, I guess Goldman Sachs was included in the entire money. Uh, they were bailed out by the government. We're bailing out rich people in the middle of this crisis. Uh, some people are furious about this. 
And so uh, th that's why finance and the good society, it seems internally contradictory. Uh, so I, uh, I, I'm intrigued by that and trying to think, uh, what does this title mean to me or what does it mean to Main Street or to Wall Street? And what does it mean about our future? So I, uh, anyway, I, I was asking Peter, well, what does the good society mean anyway? <laughs> and, uh, I decided uh, to try to figure out myself. Uh, I go back to read old newspapers from various times in history. On, you can read them on ProQuest. And I find that uh, the term good society was used a lot starting around 1800 until I didn't tell you this yet, but until 1830. Uh, by, it's funny how words change, their use changed through time. In that brief period of 30 years, it was often used in speeches made to American Indians. <laughs> the good society was our civilized society, and uh, we had to talk in simple terms to these primitive men. That's the way it was thought. We talked about the great spirit above. That's Indian for God and we talked about the good society. But then around 1830, I dissected a change in the usage of that term, and for the next 100 years, good society seemed to mean, again, something different. It meant um, kind of the good people in society, namely those people who were clean living, good hygiene, clean, healthy homes, sent their kids to school, and did everything, went to church, and did everything right, and of course they were well off, not necessarily rich, but they had nice homes and uh, successful. And it's kind of assumption. That was the good society. It was used a lot. Um, and uh, you know the term high society? That wasn't used very much. I was kind of surprised. The good society, you didn't have to be rich. Uh, you were just people with good self-control and doing things right. Then it changed again in 1937 when Walter Lippmann wrote a book entitled The Good Society, which was a huge bestseller. Uh, and uh, I actually owned that book from years back, and I read it sometime long ago. But it, what it started to mean, good society meant not high society or anything like that. It meant uh, kind of a tolerant, enlightened society where individual freedoms are respected. Uh, where people can do their own thing. Uh, it involves then kind of financial freedom as well. And uh, uh, Lippmann was kind of halfway between Keynes and Hayek. Hayek being regarded often today as very conservative and free market, uh, and Keynes being very liberal. But uh, I think Walter Lippmann was a complicated man. So ever since, I think good society means a society with a vision. And uh, uh, so it does seem to me to be kind of contradictory to the idea that finance and business would play a role, at least in, in current thinking. And so I think we have to think through the issues that constrain us politically and that affect uh, what is happening in our society. Um, now, we're living in a time with the so-called Tea Party movement, which is dominating a lot of thinkings. Uh, and I think the Tea Party people are essentially hostile toward Wall Street and finance. Uh, what is the essence of the Tea Party? I, it seems to me that it reflects a certain anger about what's happening 
about bailouts for rich banks and widespread unemployment. Uh, and it seems to reflect uh, a kind of conspiracy theory. The Tea Party pe people think that there's a conspiracy between the rich uh, finance, <laughs> Wall Street type people, and the uh, poor people against the real Americans who are working and making a living. Uh, and uh, taking our hard-earned income away, not appreciating what we're doing. Uh, this is the atmosphere that we live in now. As uh, uh, I think it's unfortunate, though, because I think finance is a real and important technology that uh, we have to let free to do what it, what it can and what, what is uh, possible with that technology. Now, a theme in some of these books that Yasin was talking about uh, was uh, that I think that uh, finance techno financial technology has been developing over many years, over centuries. And one long-term trend is that financial the finance has been democratized, that has become more and more available to the general public. It used to be only an elite group that even used any finance, and now it's uh, more widely dis distributed, and I think we have to continue that trend. This has been a theme of my book, but it, it seems a little out of place in the present environment, and that's concerning me. Uh, so I wanted to first, I, I want to think first about the, the fundamental core idea that's driving a lot of people, that something is unfair, and that uh, the, some people are rich because they, it seems like finance makes some people rich. Uh, that's the idea, and uh, some people gain power through financial dealings, uh, and that this is something that we maybe can't let continue. And I worry about that because I think that could be uh, damaging to our, our social progress. So uh, one thing I did uh, to prepare for this, I took a look at the Fortune 400, which is a list, I'm sorry, Forbes 400. It's a list of the 400 richest people in America. Um, and if you read Forbes magazine, it, it has an effort to find who all these people are. Uh, and looking at the list, I would say that almost all of them are in finance, loosely speaking. Not necessarily uh, specializing in finance, but they're involved in the kind of business dealings that would have them uh, doing equity issues or options or uh, s something involving financial markets. Uh, the, the, this, the 400 richest people, you haven't heard of hardly any of them. They're quietly working away in their offices, making deals and that sort of thing. You've heard of a few of them. Uh, you've probably heard of Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she's ranked uh, about 130th on the list. She only has 2.7 billion. Um, but, you know, she's practically the only entertainer on the list. Uh, Steven Spielberg, you've heard of him? He has a similar ranking. But, you know, he, these are business people. They do finance. They, you know, he has a thing called DreamWorks, and he produces movies, and he lines up the funding for them. There's something about people who really get good at, at financial deal-making. They get fabulously rich. Uh, by the way, um, James Cameron. Oh, there's another list Forbes has, which is the Fortune Celebrity 100. Okay, 
And they have, to get on that list, you have to both be famous and also rich. But you would be amazed at how much they lower their standards to get on that list. <laughs> because in terms of income or wealth. They don't do it by wealth, they do that one by income. The lowest uh, income person on the Celebrity 100 uh, only had $6.5 million last year. That wouldn't even buy you one of the nicest homes in Princeton, right? <laughs> and so, uh, all the athletes and ath stars are on that lower list. They can't make, except for Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, Seinfeld, they were predicting, he might make it on the Fortune Forbes 400 in, uh, in five years, but he's not there yet. Uh, and so, um, so it seems like uh, that being involved in financial markets uh, yields a lot of um, potential wealth and benefits. Uh, but the question is, uh, what do these people do anyway? <laughs> and, and what good is it? I mean, I, I, I'm talking to economists, and you're frowning right now, uh, Steve, because <laughs> you, you, economic theory wouldn't imagine that there could be any question that people who are doing this business are productive and useful in our society. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, I have a funny, you know, when Wall Street people get up and speak about what's been going on, they like to talk about the importance of financial innovation and the strength of risk management and we securitize and we spread risks and somehow it's falling flat these days. Uh, because I remember what they were saying, you know, just a few years ago about how uh, modern finance is, uh, I could quote Timothy Geithner probably saying something like this, modern finance is spreading and diversifying risks around the world and it makes it uh, possible for mortgages to be, securitizing mortgages makes it possible to, for homeowners to get the homes they want at a low interest rate because we spread the mortgages all over investors all over the world and the, uh, the risks are diversified away to practically nothing. But uh, it's not seeming so believable right now, is it? Because the, the securitized mortgage market crashed and started this whole crisis. So what went wrong, and why didn't uh, anyone see this coming? Uh, and uh, I'm thinking about security. Do you know what I mean by securitization? Uh, financial companies will take a lot of home mortgages. You bought a home, you owe money, that's a mortgage, and they can take those and package them and sell them off uh, to investors. And then they divide up into different tranches, different risk classes, and then they get Standard and Poor's or Moody's to rate them, and uh, it goes off. And, it's all sliced and diced and spread over millions of portfolios all over the world. And we used to marvel at that as a, as a, as a, uh, a um, wonder of finance. But now after the crash, we're starting to wonder about that because, uh, well, first of all, it didn't, it didn't seem to go very well. And then we started asking, well, why, what, what is so great about securitization anyway when you really think of it? All they're doing is taking mortgages and repackaging them in some other way and selling them off. Uh, and uh, they have to think about, I, I, I was recently with the Squam Lake group, which is a group of finance professors that produced a book that uh, Princeton published recently. I remember we were at one of our meetings and we had eight of the nine last presidents of the American Finance Association. And of course, we were in a little personal discussion, but one of them said, you know, I don't know if I even believe that uh, Securitization is such a great innovation. Prove it to me. 
And here I had all the finance experts in the field, and no one came up with a quick answer. <laughs> um, maybe it isn't. What is so good about all this diversification, all this, um, all of this uh, securitization of mortgages? So uh, I went and looked about and tried to see the literature on this, and I found that there's some impressive articles based on modern financial theory that explain why it is important. So, uh, there's a part of information asymmetry economics uh, talks about problems analogous to the problems that interfere with simple markets, like the market for used cars. And 40 years ago, George Akerlof uh, wrote a paper called The Market for Lemons, a lemon being a car that is in bad condition, and argued that sometimes markets can't exist because of an information asymmetry. Some cars don't get sold on the used market because you can't find out the true quality of the car, and you assume that the seller of you is giving you a lemon. The seller of the car is giving you a lemon, so you don't buy on that market. Uh, and I'm trying to summarize very quickly a theory that. Uh, so Claire Hill in 1997 wrote an important paper explaining why securitization is really an important thing, putting mortgages together in securities and then dividing them up again into different tranches and then having rating agencies rate the tranches. She argued that what it does is, is reduce the information cost of these asymmetries. So she had a paper called A Low-Cost Sweetener for Lemons, Securit Securitization. Uh, and so uh, that's, uh, but you know, it doesn't sound right. Now, when I, it doesn't sound exactly right. Uh, and I think uh, the, 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 the problem is that much more, I think Claire Hill was right about securitization of mortgages. Maybe I didn't convince you because it's kind of a complicated argument. But the problem is that lots of other things are going on at the same time. Uh, what really happened in this crisis, uh, an important part of why the subprime market blew up, is that the system got too complicated for the regulators who were in charge of limiting the risk to the system as a whole. Uh, and we had what was happening with something called regulatory arbitrage. Uh, AIG, which was a big insurance company, had to be bailed out enormously by the U.S. government. Uh, and it was because they were playing certain games that escaped under the radar of the regulators. And so they were doing this complicated credit default swap derivative uh, business. Uh, and they were effectively allowing banks to escape regulation by the banking authorities by presenting an appearance that they had reduced their risk and so they didn't need as much capital. And the regulators didn't figure it out because the problems with this arrangement were not just problems at AIG, they were kind of market problems. The problem, what would happen if everybody defaulted at the same time? Also, AIG was selling what they called 2A7 puts to money market funds. Now, they, these are the funds where you put your money and you're told by the government it's absolutely safe. But it wasn't absolutely safe. Uh, and it was, again, uh, because systemic effects were not understood. So people are really angry about this. And the anger has to do with the cynicism that some executives at AIG expressed. They said, you know, not our problem. We know our, we're supposed to maximize profits. What we did was completely legal. And, and, and this isn't exactly what they said, but it's something like this, like, it's not our problem if the regulations are wrong, right? 
We're, we're in the business of satisfying our customers. And uh, since they cost you know, like hundreds of billions of dollars for taxpayers, it uh, is a little bit annoying. Um, Dodd-Frank, the bill that passed this summer, does quite a number of things to fix this, though. Uh, I'm going through various parts of the Dodd-Frank bill. Title I creates the Financial um, Services Oversight Council and the Office of Financial Research that are supposed to police this kind of uh, activity. Title II uh, creates an orderly liquidation authority, which is supposed to handle bankruptcies of firms like uh, AIG. Title V creates the uh, Federal Insurance Office, which is supposed to regulate insurance at a federal level. Uh, Title VII uh, creates uh, uh, derivatives control, a whole range of derivatives control, uh, like controlling credit default swaps. Um, title VIII uh, is a clearing uh, title that's going to force uh, credit uh, derivatives like uh, the ones I've just mentioned onto exchanges. The whole bill is like 850 pages long, and it's very hard to read. But a lot of it is an effort to fix this particular problems. So maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay to uh, leave the system as it is. Uh, but I think part of the problem that we face with this crisis is not a problem of, uh, I mean, we fixed it maybe, or, or we have a potential for fixing it with Dodd-Frank and other corrections that might come along. But the real problem with this that caused this crisis was I think that um, maybe our financial theory was oversimplified. Uh, and maybe we have an impulse to be oversimplified. Uh, I'm thinking of um, something called physics envy among economists. Uh, we love the beauty of theory that physicists uh, produce. Uh, I was re reading a book by physicist Leon Lederman who wrote a, a book just a couple years ago called Symmetry and the Beautiful Universe. So physicists like theories that have an elegance to them. And I discovered economists do too. And you know, some of our theories, they, they have to me the same quality as uh, physics theories in terms of uh, uh, symmetry or uh, underlying uh, conservation laws, simple frameworks that, that, uh, simple, uh, that that give you a sense of epiphany or understanding. So some of the theorems which only the economists here will know about, uh, Modigliani-Miller, Ricardian equivalence, Black-Scholes, they sound to me like theories that uh, represent like conservation laws in, in physics. But unfortunately, doing these theories requires that you simplify the world, and you might have to simplify it more than the physicists do. And uh, I think there are some ugly assumptions that are necessary for economics that are not uh, pursued enough. One of these is externalities. Economists talk about them, but they don't like to incorporate them fully in their theory because they're messy. Uh, externalities happen when what one person does affects another person, uh, not just through markets, but directly. And I think there's a lot of externalities in the economy, and these are externalities that, that, uh, that ultimately would motivate uh, something, some government intervention that, uh, uh, that is hard for us to uh, understand with uh, our, our models. The other thing is behavioral economics. Economists haven't really incorporated that as well into their theory. Uh, issues like confidence, trust, procrastination, framing, these are psychological issues that interfere with the functioning of markets. Uh, 
Uh, but you know, Dodd-Frank is on to some of these, fixing some of these problems as well. There's things like the, uh, that, that deal with psychological problems that investors have. So we have now the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Office of Investor Protection, the Office of the Investor Advocate, and the Office of Housing Counseling. Uh, so we really have an ambitious new program that Congress has produced, and it's going to be unfolding over years to deal with some of these behavioral problems. Um, but uh, and, and I think that uh, we should be pleased with our financial system, even though it has suddenly broken on us, pleased overall, because I think it reflects a uh, history of innovation that goes quite far back that um, I think I have more here. I didn't time my talk as well as I want. Uh, I was going to give examples. I, I'll give a couple of examples. But there often are innovations that don't impress economists because they're not elegant enough. Uh, I'll give a couple of e examples. And uh, Anyone here heard of Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler? You might have heard of them. If you're, if you're over the age of 50, anyway. <laughs> uh, they wrote a book called Capitalist Manifesto in 1958. And that book, uh, anyone heard of that? So you've never heard of it, but you're living it, because uh, they, they, they advocated employee stock ownership plans. And they did it for an externality. They thought that it's good to get people involved in capitalism. It's psychologically morale building. So you should own shares in your employer. The government shouldn't subsidize this. Well, they wrote it in 58. US Congress did it in 75. And it's still here. There are all these ESOPs. You heard of an ESOP? Russell Long brought that in because <clears throat> he read Kelso and Adler. And they did it. And it's with us. And it'll be with us for a long time, I think. And then in 1961, Kelso and Adler wrote a book called The New Capitalist. You see, Pete, you probably never heard of that. Even the economists never heard of that. But you live with it. So in that book, they had this, when you read them, when it's in the first book, it seems kind of nutty. It sounds nutty just because anyone who produces, pr proposes something uh, for the first time, it sounds funny. They proposed, proposed Capital Diffusion Insurance Corporation. And they said what this should be is a new government corporation that encourages small business by, by guaranteeing loans to it, just like the FHA guarantees home loans. And it, well, I was looking at this and thinking, is that a crazy idea? But then I said, wait a minute, I realize we have something called the Small Business Administration that's doing exactly that. Uh, now, it predates 61, but it wasn't doing that business before then. So I think our financial system is the accumulation of a lot of good ideas, uh, and we forget about them. We forget their origins, and we get angry and upset, and even though they are good. Now, coming back to, um, I started out by talking about the wealthy people uh, the, For the Forbes 400, and wondering whether we really like these people <laughs> or not. So uh, there's an important thing happening right now, um, which is a revival of Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth. Has this reached you? I, uh, let me tell you the story. Andrew Carnegie was one of the richest men, maybe he was the richest man in America in the late 19th century. And in 1889, he wrote an article in a popular magazine called North American Review. The title of his article was one word. They did it back then. They had one word titles even back then, wealth. 
and he made a very aggressive argument uh, that got people furious. <laughs> it wasn't popular among the general public. The argument was this, that the capitalist system works really well because it allows real geniuses like Andrew Carnegie to become very wealthy. And they can't spend the money, they end up giving it away. Or at least they should give it away. And so he said, uh, he said that uh, the system brings up people, I'm quoting him, men possessed of a peculiar talent for affairs rise to the top in the business world. And so that's the genius of capitalism. And then they give it away. Uh, and uh, th that, that is the gospel of, uh, at, the end of the th at the end of the article, he said that that's the gospel of wealth. And everyone picked up the audacity of claiming that wealth has a gospel. And it was all over the country then. Uh, well, it's been recently been picked up by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. You've probably heard of them, right? Now, some people, I, even at dinner, I heard some antagonism expressed toward Bill Gates for the way he made his money. But you've got to give him credit. He is giving billions away. He set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the biggest foundation in the world. And they're giving it away. And Warren Buffett and Bill Gates last month were in China. And they assembled, attempted to assemble the 50 richest persons in China. They put on an invitation list, and three quarters of them came. And Gates and Buffett advocated giving away most of your money before you die. And that's the gospel of wealth. So maybe they don't involve, maybe it's not ego involving to involve most people. <laughs> He's trying to involve rich people. But let's go back to Carnegie. Do you know what he did? Uh, it, in 18, he wrote that paper in 1889. In 1896, he created the Carnegie Museum of Natural History when he was 61 years old. Then he created Carnegie Institute of Technology, now called Carnegie Mellon University, when he was 65. Then he sold his company, Carnegie Steel, and devoted the rest of his life to philanthropy. Again, using his talents as a man of uh, peculiar talent for affairs. Uh, and uh, lived out his gospel of wealth. Uh, notably for uh, Princeton, I, I learned, he came to Princeton, New Jersey in 1905 to visit Grover Cleveland, who lived here, and a Princeton uh, alumnus, Russell Baker, gave him a tour of Princeton. Uh, and Baker took him to the marshland, and he said, I'm quoting from the newspaper I found, we once had the idea that flooding in those marshes could make a lake for Princeton College. And so Carnegie said, consider it done. <laughs> and he just did it. Carnegie never even went to college, but he didn't have any animosity. Uh, and then uh, uh, they flooded the marshes. And not only that, Carnegie bought a trophy for the first Princeton crew team to, uh, the first team to win on Lake Carnegie. I've noticed, I, I don't live here, but I've noticed my hotel had a paintings of Lake Carnegie. This morning I was at the Princeton, Princeton uh, University Investment Corporation and I saw a big painting of Lake Carnegie. It must improve your uh, quality of life here, having a lake. That, <laughs> and it's just the generosity of Andrew Carnegie. So then um, I was inspired more. This is thinking about the good society. And I'm not speaking to the rich, I assume. Is anyone here uh, a billionaire? Uh, was, any, was anyone invited to one of Bill Gates' uh, seminars about giving away half of your wealth? Maybe not, uh, but I just want to carry this a little further. 
uh, Jill was talking initially about Walter Edge. Uh, so uh, this is the Walter Edge lecture. Uh, and you pointed out that he was twice governor of New Jersey and he was a US senator and he was ambassador to France. Uh, he must have been a remarkable person. So what happened? How did this lecture get created? Well, it, uh, it says in the documentation, from his estate assigned to the university by his family. So this, is, this lecture is part of philanthropy. Uh, and I want one more example, James McCosh. Anyone know who he is? Uh, this is McCosh Hall. Uh, he was a professor of philosophy at uh, Princeton, uh, and he became president of Princeton. And what I read is he was a beloved president, and he never gave up his students. And even as he was president for 20 years, and he took students into his office and had seminars on uh, intriguing topics of the day. Anyway, uh, it was uh, a gift of a small group of friends of McCosh this building. So I looked it up. Guess what this building cost when it was built in 1906? This is the 1906 McCosh Hall. I, I'm sure it is, yeah. What did it cost? It was, well, it was $500,000. You bring that up to today's prices, that's $12.5 for this building. Where did it come from? It came from these good society people. Now this is sounding a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know what to make of it because uh, I'm not through with this book yet. I, I think we all have mixed feelings about, I, I'm, I'm referring to the, the response that I read in old newspapers to Andrew Carnegie's book. Somebody said in 1897, uh, uh, I forget exactly, the, 1890 it was, saying, this guy has got to be kidding, that these robber barons who've made so much money through aggressive business, uh, that we think of them as the good society. Uh, but I think that uh, in some ways, I think there's, you know, everything is a mixture. I think there's some element of truth to, uh, to uh, Carnegie. Uh, so I'm going out, and I'm trying to write a new book, right? I'm going out, and uh, I, 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 I thought maybe uh, we, we actually face a crisis as a nation in terms of economic inequality. I, I'm talking about these issues because they're, they're real issues. The inequality in this country has been getting worse for 30 years. And I worry that it might get worse and worse. We have a trend, uh, and it may be exacerbated, we don't know that this will happen, but exacerbated by the information economics revolution, by the information revolution, which allows replication of things. It might, for example, put the college professors out of business by and it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I'm thinking from my own perspective. I'm online now through Yale, Open Yale. Uh, things are being given away free on the web. It's hitting newspapers. It's hitting all kinds of business that used to provide incomes. Publishing, maybe. Uh, otherwise, Princeton Press is doing fine. But uh, there's some changes in our society. And then we see these 400 Forbes people. And are they really deserving of this? And is society going to let this go? Where are we going to do? What, what are we going to do if this gets bigger and more intense in coming years? That's why I want to think about Andrew Carnegie and think about uh, sympathetically. I think there's kind of a point, but, but I, uh, I, I haven't refined my thinking about it completely yet. But my, uh, one thing I did with the co-author Len Berman is we did some calculations. What if the United States had decided in 1979 that we're not going to let income inequality get any worse? 
and that we're going to make the tax system more progressive if it gets worse. You know, just freeze it at 1979 levels in terms of the Lorentz curve. Well, we discovered through our simulations that we would have to raise by 2002 the marginal tax rate at the highest tax bracket to over 75%. And I don't know where it would be today. It's heading up to really high levels. And so uh, we, we have an uncomfortable potential problem. Uh, so what can we do? Uh, and I, I was thinking of making proposals. <laughs> I haven't written the book yet. But I, I'm thinking that maybe sympathetic to Carnegie and sympathetic, uh, I haven't worked it out, but the idea is maybe we have to raise the taxes on the rich, but maybe we can do it in a constructive way. It doesn't have to be just an increase in tax rates. Um, it's going to be kind of harmful to incentives for high-income people if the tax the marginal tax rate on high incomes goes over 90%. I'm afraid that it might have to, given the changes in the economy. So this is a little proposal that I have. And I, I, I'm thinking that we should go back and rethink our charitable contributions. This is a new proposal, which I haven't tried out much. But uh, right now, we have a system that allows you to deduct from your income tax if you give to charity. You probably know about this. I hope you do. some of you do this. But the system today isn't very satisfying. Uh, a lot of us would like to save all our money up until we retire and then do something like uh, create Lake Carnegie. I mean, something maybe not quite as big as, or build Nakash Hall, or do something interesting with our money. But what the government wants you to do is give it away every year. Otherwise, you don't get a deduction. They'll, they'll take the money. If it's a high tax bracket, it's not going to be very satisfying. And so I'm afraid that it would have an incentive comp a problem that would prevent these people from doing what they do. And um, so my, my, my uh, incipient proposal is that we should rethink charitable contributions. Now, incidentally, I, I wonder, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you uh, have a donor advised fund right now. Uh, do you have one? <laughs> anyway. Uh, the, 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 the current law is in an effort to encourage people to not just waste all their money consuming uh, extravagantly when they make money. You should give it away, right? But you don't know where to give it. You get these phone calls at night. Aren't they kind of annoying? They call it dinner time. And they just want, they, they're just pandering. They're just, they don't know who you are. They don't care. I mean, you kind of want to do something meaningful. You don't have to spend it on yourself but you want to do something with the money that, that reflects you. So this is what current law allows. Stop giving, and I think maybe you should, stop giving to all these charities that call you on the phone, and then call a brokerage service and say, I want to set up a donor-advised fund. And I know Schwab offers one, Fidelity offers one, Vanguard offers one. And what you do is you give your charitable contribution to your own fund. And you can start one for as little as $5,000. Uh, and, okay, you get the same tax deduction as if you gave it to some charity today. You can let it accumulate, and then when you're good and ready, you've got time on your hands and you think about some good cause, you give it away. Uh, you got to give it away. <laughs> but, uh, because that's, you've, you can't get it back once you put it in a donor advised fund. Uh, but, uh, so that's the th way it should be. You know, in order to get people, I don't think charitable giving is very meaningful or satisfying right now.
And we want people to be enticed to do the kind of thing Andrew Carnegie did. So it seems to me we can make it easier. So I have, a, uh, this is, these are all kind of technical income tax thing, but my proposal are eliminate the 50%, 30%, and 20% limits on charitable deductions. Eliminate the, eliminate the five-year limit on carry-forwards for charitable deductions. Eliminate the 5% distribution requirement. Uh, and eliminate foreign restrictions on charities. Let me just explain the last two. If you set up a donor-advised fund now, and you can do that tomorrow, you can do it right now on your laptop probably, <laughs> you've got your money accumulating until you have time to think about what you want to do with it. But the fund has to give away 5% a year, the law says, or, or the government will take it. So you really don't accumulate interest on it, and it's not as rewarding. So I, th I think they should let you think about it until you retire, until you die, you know, as long as you live. That, that would allow you to do things like create Lake Carnegie or something. Uh, the other thing is, you can't do, do donate to a foreign charity uh, unless there's a tax treaty with the foreign country. Uh, and so that's, uh, if you look at the Gates Foundation, it seems to me that one of the most important things the Gates Foundation has done is with regard to foreign charity. For example, Bill and Melinda Gates are giving money to Africa for vaccinations, where many people are dying in a very preventable, their deaths are very preventable. Now, the United Nations has the so-called Millennium Development Goals, and the, the, the recommendation from the United Nations, this is voted on by the General Assembly, is that every country gives 0.7% of their gross national income to foreign aid to poorer countries. Guess what the United States gives? It's 0.2% of our national income goes to charity to foreign countries. Now, you might think, it'd be nice. I'll give to vaccinations in Africa. Well, the IRS will say, tough luck. You know, you don't get a deduction because you're not giving it to Americans. So these are the kind of flaws in our system that I think could make it possible for us to raise tax rates on the, on the rich and keep, in uh, keep alive some motivations. So I guess that's the uh, end of what I was going to say, except that I think in my book, I, I want, it's not going to be uh, concluding with these proposals, because uh, I think they're important proposals. I encouraging, making charitable giving a more satisfying thing, making it something that someone would save up over a lifetime to do in a big way, I think that is important. But, I think maybe even more important, and what I'll try to emphasize in my new book, yeah, is that uh, there's a lot of things in our system that we already have uh, that uh, financial institutions that were designed over the years, uh, often they were designed to deal with intuitive ideas about externalities or about human behavior problems. A lot of them are in Dodd-Frank, uh, and I'm not being an apologist for the wealthy at all when I say this. that. We do have a financial system already that is part of the cause of our prosperity uh, and, and uh, the good society that we already have uh, and that we ought to see it, encourage it to develop further. So I'll stop with that and uh, you may clap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
Yes, so you may start. If anyone uh, was, uh, I, I imagine there's someone who uh, is angered by my uh, even suggesting the possibility I, that Andrew Carnegie could have been partly right. Uh, but maybe not, maybe. Uh, with respect to your, your last your proposal, uh, don't you have to do something about the estate, the estate tax so that uh, right. people just simply don't accumulate money? I, I, if you put it in a donor-advised fund, that's out, of your, that's out of your hands and out of your estate. Yeah. But otherwise, well, it yeah, seems to me point. that you don't want people just accumulating money that's endlessly. That's a, a very good point. We do have an estate tax that has been kind of rolled back, right? It might be reimposed in next year. Uh, and. Uh, but I think you can evade that completely by giving your estate away. Isn't that right? Is there a charitable deduction limit against the estate tax? See, I was referring to the 50% income limit. Uh, depending on the kind of charities for the income tax, uh, you can give away no more than, you can deduct no more than half your income. I don't know why we have that limit. But I didn't know that the estate tax has a limit. I think you can give your whole estate away, and it's gone, and the government won't. Uh, Right. 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 Well, uh, the estate tax has been very controversial, and we've been cutting it. Uh, uh, Republicans have been calling it the death tax. It is controversial in some sense that sometimes people have a family business, and uh, the elder dies, and uh, they have to go out of business because they can't pay the estate tax without selling the business. Uh, and uh, so it's been controversial. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the, the question is, how do we divide between income tax and estate taxes? Uh, maybe we should raise the estate tax, but I, I, I'm concerned about how people feel about this. And the issue is that people care about their children. A lot of people are motivated to make money to help their children in the future. And so it, uh, it rubs people the wrong way to think that, that the government would confiscate everything on your death. Now, I don't know what Andrew Carnegie said. I think he might have favored an estate tax, because he said everyone has a moral obligation to give it away in their lifetime. And he, he retired at, what did I say, age uh, 61, so that he was still vital and alive. He lived to 83. He spent 20 years giving his money away. Uh, and that's the model that he has for everyone. So, so maybe we should raise the estate tax to 100%. But I, I'm not clear. I, I think we have to think about how to make life. Uh, uh, it, it is important that we have people who try to make money. This is a thing that drives people and motivates people. And, and people care about their children. So there's no easy answer. But one thing that occurs to me is that the model that, uh, and I don't know exactly how to uh, incorporate uh, encouragements for this, but one model is to set yourself, your children up running foundations. And this is what Bill, uh, what Warren Buffett has done with his children. I think he's given, does anyone know the number? He's given them like a billion dollars each. Uh, is that right? Uh, I'm trying to remember what I read in the news. But it's, it's, it takes the form of a family foundation that they will give away. 
and so uh, maybe that's the way to prepare. There's an interesting book called Richistan, which is written by Wall Street Journal reporter um, Robert Frank, not the economist. There's two Robert Franks. It's very confusing. But it's a very good book, and it describes the way the, the, the rich people in America live. And we're talking billionaires. Well, they seclude themselves from society, and they live in these little communities of super rich people. And uh, they tend to live uh, very um, kind of pampered lives. <laughs> and uh, the rate of depression among their children is extremely high. Like, they don't, in a sense, they don't have meaning in life. So I think maybe uh, uh, in, you know, there are people who respond to this by endowing their children with money to give away. And I, I think you can do that under current law, and we could make the law make that more. And maybe that's what you should do for your children, rather than make them rich. Professor, um, oh, yes. I, I appreciate your comments tonight. I'm a Main Street real estate lawyer, so your studies every day you are, are very relevant to, yeah. to my day-to-day -day living. Um, so I was excited you to be here. deal with billionaires? Um, I, you know, I have a couple of clients who make a few dollars, but okay. no one in that universe. Um, I, kind of as an interesting follow-up to this, this gentleman's comment, I, I, would, I would hope that your new book addresses one of the issues. There's a terrific piece in the New York Times editorial uh, page not too long ago of a Harvard uh, estate and uh, trust uh, professor at the Harvard Law School wrote, one of the interesting developments in, in the Car Carnegie uh, um, example is, is, is um, instructive is the rule against perpetuities is a law that a lot of people may, may or may not be familiar with in law that deals with dynastic trusts and says, hey, on this issue of family wealth, uh, we can't let things go on forever so that just a couple of people continue to grow great wealth. And in America today, there are 16 states that have now abolished the rule against perpetuities because guys like Jamie Dimon are really smart. And Lloyd Blankfein is really smart. And they have convinced local legislatures to get rid of that because if you do that, we'll promise you trillions of dollars of cash coming into your states to build wealth. And what they've done is they've been able to create wealth that will never be accountable, not in one or two or three generations, but forever. And so a, a, a Carnegie four or five generations removed will have a really nice car and a really nice estate and never pay taxes on it. And okay. um, unlike a corporate guy who works at Bristol here in Princeton and gets a car and pays taxes on the money, it'll never be recognized. And so if you're going to make that inquiry and do that book, it would be terrific to, to answer that question well, and address a, that. A state legislator can commit future legislatures from not rescinding that, right? Well, I think state legislatures can abolish the rule against perpetuities, at least locally, and deal with the, the you know, at least some treatment of the money. Anyway, and, and the professor that, raised that question, and it's way out of my pay grade. Yeah. But, but he, he re really created the idea that we have created these dynastic trusts that we haven't seen since Carnegie. And so I'll, I'll, I'll I would be for great that. for somebody like you to, to address it. Okay, good. Thanks. Uh, yes, who has a microphone? Oh, oh, here. I think the mic people are choosing who speaks next. 
Yes. Uh, thank you for uh, the talk tonight. Um, you briefly uh, spoke in the beginning about the current market and uh, especially investor confidence. And I just wanted your opinion on your thoughts on this high frequency trading, these uh, computer algorithms that are, are taking an advantage in, in milliseconds and what you think that does to uh, investor confidence, not it, basically in, in the market, you know, is it, is it even playing field anymore? What, what uh, our questioner was referring to is the ability that people have now to place orders for a millionth of a second, I guess, and, uh, uh, and there's a lot of trading that goes on at this frequency, uh, and it becomes, uh, uh, the people have a certain advantage who are close to the uh, central exchange uh, because electricity only flows at the speed of light, and it, it, it takes some milliseconds for the electricity to get to the exchange. So now it, it, we're going back to the old 19th century when people tried to stay as close as they could to the exchange so they could be there. Uh, I don't know that it's that, uh, I know it seems you, you are at a disadvantage now if you're uh, you know, uh, not right at the center and not involved in this trading, but it, uh, I'm not uh, aware that it poses a serious problem for other investors. Uh, it's, it's a, it, it's, uh, it seems harmless enough to me, and, but it may have a bad appearance. It may look like, you know, how can I possibly win in the stock market if I'm competing against people who have these uh, computerized trading systems that operate at such a microscopic level that you can't even see them. They move so fast you can't even see them. But I, I haven't heard any, uh, maybe someone can let me know if there is, but I haven't heard any uh, really important complaints that suggest that we should be worried about it. Now, who has the mic? Yeah. Uh, yes, Dr. Schiller, I, um, you talked about income inequality, and I'm curious what you think the uh, sort of eventual outcome or implications of the, the growing trend of inequality between, say, the, the highest and lowest employees of any, any company. Um, and where do you think it might go? What do you worry about? Things like social unrest or, or other possibilities? Well, I am worried about social unrest. And I thought that we're already seeing things that are a bit alarming. The, uh, you know, the, the uh, recent years have produced, uh, the, I, I'm not, I mentioned the Tea Party movement, it's, but not the Tea Party, things you see online death threats against politicians, a really angry tone that's developing. Uh, some Tea Party people talk about a revolution. Uh, I don't know what they mean, but they're, they're really angry. Now, there is a question, you know, people can tolerate a lot of inequality if they think that it's basically fair. Uh, a lot of us have different opinions about Bill Gates. <laughs> I've heard people express them. But, you know, he is giving away, he's given away, what, $30 billion already. He kind of softens your anger at the man. Uh, and so I think that's what we have to do. We, we have to create a society where we acknowledge that there is some inequality, but, uh, and it may not be completely fair, uh, but it's not something that makes you really angry. And one way of doing that is to encourage charitable giving. And the more you hear about wealthy people doing that, uh, especially if you knew that the marginal tax bracket is really high, and uh, at, for high incomes, and, and so maybe the people are forced to give it away, but they're giving it away. Uh, and 
Uh, that seems to me uh, where we might realistically have to go. My, my concern isn't so much for Americans that will be able to afford to have a trust fund, but probably for the majority of Americans that will be lucky to be able to uh, have a retirement that they can enjoy to have enough money. Um, but at the same time, I agree with you. I think today there are tremendous opportunities for everyday Americans to be able to invest. But um, you hear statistics that people spend more time planning their annual vacation than they do on planning for the retirement. What, what can we do to get Americans to begin to focus on taking advantage of the opportunities to invest and to do a better job for themselves? Well, what, you, you uh, uh, wondered about the really low-income people, which is uh, they're the ones who are most aggrieved right now. And uh, when you ask what can we do, uh, and just uh, one thing I wasn't able to fully cover in this talk was the things we've already done and that could be done more, more seriously. Uh, now, life is full of paradoxes. You wouldn't have imagined that the ultra-conservative economist Milton Friedman would be behind this idea. But he advocated what he called a negative income tax for low-income people. And uh, as I say, when the, when, when the idea first came out, he wrote a book called Capitalism and Freedom in 1963. And in that book, he advocated, let's have low-income people pay negative taxes. That means they get money back from the government. Now, he started to sound like a real nut for proposing that. And it just seemed totally out of character for this free market guy to, uh, but he did say that. And then President Nixon started to try to do that. It didn't work, and then Russell Long came along and created something called the Earned Income Tax Credit. It, it, it looked like uh, people wouldn't accept the idea that poor people who are not working would get a negative income tax. But the idea is if, you're, if you are working for a very low income, you should get money back from the government. We now have that. And we've had it for a number of years. And it, it's something like you can get $5,000 back. I don't know the exact number uh, if you are very low income. But we limit it now uh, to, to a substantial negative income tax to families with uh, children uh, or single mothers with children. So it's not, uh, not as general as Milton Friedman proposed it. But we could do something more. Now, you were also saying that you wanted to know something that would help low income people get out of the. Right. Well, that's moderate income. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I didn't give all the color. I mentioned Kelso and Adler. In their book, they were talking about the vicious circle of poverty, that if you're really poor, you can't save any money. And so then you stay poor, and you can't get out of it. Whereas other people who, who have a leg up because their parents were wealthy or enough, they can start saving and start accumulating. So his proposal to have uh, government-insured small business loans was one thing that was aimed at that. There's other things that have happened more recently, notably uh, the uh, microcredit that Mohammed Yunus uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize for at Grameen Bank. Uh, the idea is that we can make loans to low-income people. And so there has been progress in getting people out of the so-called vicious circle of poverty. Now, middle-income people, uh, those are the Tea Party people, and they're the ones who are most active and angry. We have to think of some things that uh, 
um, that helped them too. Um, I, I'm open to other suggestions. That, uh, oh, well, now education is one of the great social uh, events in social progress because we give education to everyone. Uh, and, and this is something that the United States was a particular pioneer in, in the world. One reason why this country has such a good social spirit uh, because people know that we care about all the children and we give educations free to everyone. It wasn't true in Europe uh, in the 19th century and now the U.S. was, uh, was doing this for quite a long time. Uh, and I think as we become wealthier and wealthier, uh, we'll see more of these efforts to boost the uh, opportunities for, for low or middle income people. So I'm just uh, uh, Professor, thank you very much for your speech. Uh, just a quick comment on your question, if there's any complaints about high frequency trading, it's called the flash crash, it happened in May, in case you didn't read oh, about the that. The flash crash, yeah. yeah. And uh, just like on another tangent line, um, right now, the, obviously after uh, the aftermath of the crisis, the Federal Reserve is uh, pursuing a pretty aggressive monetary policy giving a lot of you know, very free, very low credit to uh, banks. So are you worried that essentially there's a monetization of debt going on where the banks are kind of the middleman, they're receiving the spread between treasuries and whatever the Fed is giving them? And like, how long do you think this situation can last with, uh, without like, a smooth transition into lending back to businesses as opposed to just collecting the, the reward of uh, you know, T-bills until the yield curve is completely flat? Well, we're in the so-called liquidity trap now, which makes it, uh, this is difficult to get out of. Uh, but the, what the Fed is about to embark on is so-called quantitative easing. Uh, they've been buying, uh, supporting the federal funds market, which is the extreme short end of the market. And uh, they've stopped temporarily buying long-term treasuries. But uh, the idea that is coming out of the Fed now is that we'll resume this program. It'll be quantitative, quantitative easing too. Uh, and uh, there, there was a recent study in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York by Gagnon and associates that claim that, that there's real evidence that quantitative easing works. So I think that that is the next step. It works in lowering long-term yields. Uh, and that is the next step and I think we'll be taking it. Uh, whether it's enough to get us out of this funk, I'm not, not sure. We'll see what they do. Hi. Thank you very much. Can you tell us where you stand right now on the mortgage interest tax deduction and, and any changes that you think might be coming there and, and maybe how to use that as a tool to right. perhaps level the playing field? Yeah. It, it, currently, the United States subsidizes housing in a very important way, which is that you do not have to pay taxes on the implicit rent in the home that you own. If you don't rent it out, you don't, you know, you don't get rental income, so you don't pay taxes on it. But you do get an interest rate deduction on your mortgage. And so that is a subsidy to housing. And uh, we, we have felt in this country that we want to subsidize housing uh, because it's thought in this country that homeowners are, are better citizens and they get more involved as citizens, especially in America. Europe is a country where you have lords and landlords and you don't own your own home. You have to follow the orders of the landlord. Uh, you don't have a sense of permanency because 
the landlord could decide to throw you out and then you'd have to find another home. Uh, and so there's a sense of pride in this country that we are a nation of homeowners. But I, I think that, that we don't want too high a home ownership rate. And we've maybe pushed it up too high. It was getting close to 70%. And it was involving a lot of people who weren't really ready for, home, ready for the responsibility or they, uh, they were encouraged beyond their income to invest in homes. Right now, we are in a budget crisis, and we have to find ways of, uh, of raising taxes. One of the ways would be to eliminate the mortgage deduction, and I think, uh, or at least scale it back so that it's not quite so generous. And uh, I hate to be in favor of raising taxes, but I'm not a politician, so you can't vote me out for having said it. <laughs> but I think that uh, it's a plausible step to take. Homeowners won't like that, though, because it well, I should say their first reaction would be not to like it because their, their taxes are going to go up and plausibly the value of their house will go down. But offsetting that is it's a better country for their children <laughs> with, uh, without this distortionary uh, tax subsidy and with l uh, lower cost of housing. So on balance, I think taxpayers ought to be happy with that. Uh, uh, under the current circumstances, it would be a reasonable thing to do to reduce the, or even eliminate the mortgage tax deduction. All right. Thank you very much for your remarks. Thank you for that.